Have a seat. All you uh, friendly people who have robbed me of my ability to physically touch you, you have no idea how hard this coronavirus is on someone whose love language is touch. Have some sympathy for your pastor. We are uh, finishing, uh, sorry, we are getting close to the end of the first part of Jesus' sermon that he had on the Mount, which is what we are studying this spring. The part that we are looking at right now is called the Beatitudes because there's a lot of blesseds in them, so they've been nicknamed the Beatitudes. We are on the final one that's printed in your bulletin, though they are a sequence and they are all there. And then there's a companion verse from Ephesians chapter 2 to help us think through uh, more deeply the application of this blessing. So if you've got a bulletin, turn to a back panel of your bulletin and you will see the scriptures that we will be reflecting upon this morning from Matthew 5 and Ephesians 2, and to help us with the reading of it, Phil. The first scripture is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The second passage is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are continuing, as I mentioned, this series, and we are here early in the ministry of Jesus. People are flocking to him because of the miracles he's doing and the revolutionary nature of his teachings. Here in this famous discourse, Jesus is laying out a kind and pattern of life so countercultural, so absurdly beautiful and loving that it both inspires people and alienates them. But as we're about to see, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are given the sight, 
the power and the principles to help actually live this out, not perfectly, but in real integrity and truth. And in this last beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, we see a description that almost everyone in our culture, wherever we are in our journey of faith, whatever we believe in, in terms of our religious beliefs, we can agree with. We all love peacemakers. We're Canada. We're the peacekeeping, peacemaking country. But what kind of peacemaking is Jesus actually talking about? What I think we're going to find is the peacemaking here is far more profound than the kind of peacemaking our cultural generally talks about. Far more painful than what our culture generally talks about and far more powerful than what our culture generally sees. It's far different. What peacemaking is, something more profound. Why it's so difficult, something far more painful. Why it's worth it, something far more powerful. Let's look at those three. What peacemaking is, a profound definition of peacemaking in my opinion. We have a a general idea of peacemaking in our culture, and I want to say, firstly, what peacemaking here is not. It is not the culture's definition of peacemaking. It is, indeed, far more profound. Our culture thinks of peace as the cessation of conflict, generally. But we get into a lot of cessation of conflict where there isn't the kind of peace that Jesus is referring to actually present. Here are some of the dynamics that we see when conflict arises in our culture, which leads to a more superficial kind of peace. Firstly, when we get into conflict, we as a culture tend to demonize the other party. So instead of just disagreeing with each other, we start to make moral judgments about the value of each other. We give ourselves permission to write each other off. The gospel approach to peacemaking always seeks to humanize the other. To see them as beloved creations of God, made in God's image with magnificent dignity and worth moving toward, not away from. Secondly, in our culture, we tend to, when we're in conflict, we tend to create echo chambers where we go and remove ourselves from the person we're in conflict with, start talking to people who agree with us, making us feel justified in our anger and our conflict, and further diminishing the value of the other person's and their approach. But the gospel approach is not to create echo chambers, but to create safe places for listening to each other, to moving toward each other and allowing each other to spill out your frustration and your resentment and your pain. Far more profound. I was involved in a kind of attempt at peacemaking um, that was eventually a failure And I knew one of the people and didn't know the other. And I was quite interested in watching the dynamic because when we got in the room, one side started to own. And the other side said, and? And then they kept owning and owning. And I counted eight different owning of wrong and confessing of it and asking for forgiveness. And finally, I had to call a timeout because I knew the other person. I said, look, we need to go outside for a second. I said, look. I appreciate that they have wounded you. They have admitted that they have wounded you. But gospel peacemaking is where both of us own. And there's no mutuality yet. You need to start owning some of your own. But I find in our culture that's not abnormal to wait for the other side to completely own before you're willing to open up. In the gospel, 
You lead by owning your own stuff and your own sin. So, as opposed to our culture which demonizes instead of humanizes, which creates echo chambers instead of places of listening, which requires total owning by the other of everything they've done wrong before I'm willing to move in, the gospel doesn't do any of those. It owns as a presupposition that it's going to come and have to confess and is willing to confess readily. It listens instead of creating echo chambers. And it humanizes instead of demonizing. Now there's a second thing that uh, this is not, this peacemaking, this gospel peacemaking. And if you're new to Christianity or you're investigating, you may not know this about Christians. Uh, You may think most Christians are what you hear about in the media, kind of uh, red hat wearing, warlike, angry people uh, who like to go to war. But now I want you to peek in past that simplistic characterization into the heart of an internal debate amongst Christians. So if you're curious about the faith, we're giving a peek into the, into the engine room. Enjoy the ride. And we discuss some in-house disagreements. This is going to take a moment. This is unusual for me. I don't usually go this in depth. But it is fashionable in certain parts of both progressive and evangelical Christianity right now to argue that this verse is a part of a cluster of Christian teachings by Jesus that promote Christian pacifism. Some churches and leaders go so far to say that Christians should not be police officers or join the army. With all due respect to them, and many of them are powerful thinkers, and I'm going to have to simplify a little bit their teaching to explain why I don't feel compelled by their argument. I want to give you some reasons why I think they are not reading the New Testament correctly. Firstly, my first reason for saying that peacemaking is not pacifism is the reality of sin and evil. When I hear the arguments of Christian pacifists against people being involved in war and that war is always wrong, they describe the oppressive and horrible things that happen in war. They're absolutely right. But these things also happen in peacetime because such is our world. People get killed and raped and involved in sex trafficking in peacetime as well as wartime. People are made orphans in peacetime as well as wartime. The reality of sin and evil is it's so deep and so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. War intensifies what is already there. Move to North Korea, which is in peacetime, and then ask and answer the question whether oppression and misery and sin cannot be rampant in peacetime, because they are. War and peace here on this planet are different in degree, but not in kind. Secondly, the law of love. In the gospel, the law of love requires us to intervene, sometimes physically and sometimes violently, to stop sin and oppression. If I saw my daughter coming from the subway after school, and I saw a van following her and then stop in front of her and someone come out and grab her and try and throw her in the van, and I knew that a sex trafficking ring was operating in my area, would it be okay for me just to pacifistically pray that that would be stopped? Or would God commend me going and physically intervening to stop the kidnapping and rape and slavery of my daughter? I submit to you that the gospel would commend me out of love for my daughter, that the law of love would require me as a husband and a father to go and help her. In fact, the law of love would so extend to her kidnapper that I would want to see him broken 
from the evil and corrupting and addictive behaviors that have got him into this sex trafficking ring in the first place. The law of love, I think, would commend me to intervene. I say to you that what I have just described personally also, on a much larger scale, applies to some wars. Some of them are so oppressive, so evil. Second World War and the slaughter of six million Jewish and Romani and disabled people by the Nazi regime that we are required by the law of love to intervene. Thirdly, the gospel understanding of justice does not just permit but often requires physical, even violent responses to deep evil. I think I've just described some of that. If someone kills another person, justice requires a punishment. Just because that sex trafficker had a a broken or dysfunctional childhood does not get them off the hook under gospel justice, does not allow them to enter into sex trafficking. In fact, if you go into the Old Testament, you will see that the primary way that justice was was, uh, dispensed in Israel was through laws of restitution. You pay back double what your injury has inflicted upon your victim. That's not about deterrence. It's not about rehabilitation. Those are both important, and our, our modern justice system uh, seeks after both deterrence and rehabilitation. But the primary purpose of gospel justice and punishment is the promotion of God's justice. God is just, and we are made in His image. We are made and expected to show His image by doing justice. Therefore, police officers who help prevent criminal behavior and who protect people from oppression and kidnapping and sex slavery and rapes, they are doing God's will and promoting God's justice. Listen to Romans 13, where Paul, in describing the Christian understanding of how to relate to the government, uses these words, among others, to describe governing authorities. They are, quote-unquote, whom God has appointed. They are, quote-unquote, ministers of God. They are, quote-unquote, a terror. Not to good conduct, but to bad. They are, quote-unquote, sorry, quote-unquote, it does not bear the sword in vain. Implicit in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 13, is a view of government and the sword and the terror of physical justice-keeping that's in line with understanding of the gospel and in line with the teachings of Jesus. It is an insufficient response, in my opinion, because I have asked someone directly, what about World War II and Nazism? What was going to stop the Holocaust? We should have just prayed. God would have stopped it. I submit to you what I submitted to that law professor. There are millions of prayers that went out to stop it, and it did not. What God used to stop the Holocaust were armies, both Allied and Soviet. It is historically, I do not think, very compelling to argue that prayer was the way to stop it because providence has showed us that it was armies that stopped it. It is also theologically, I think, not very sustainable to argue that way. I do not think if I as a father watched them take my wife and my, my daughter or even my wife into the van and I just prayed, I do not think I was fulfilling the law of love to my daughter or the attacker. I do not think I was fulfilling the principle of gospel justice. I do not think I was acknowledging the true reality of sin and evil. I was letting predators 
commit predation. Fourthly, I think if we understand Jesus rightly, it will change us from pacifists to peacemakers because Jesus made peace and came down to make peace. But he made peace by going to war. Jesus is not just a peacemaker. He is God's warrior king, redeemer, who went to war against the true enemy of our souls, Satan, the devil. He did teach us to turn the other cheek. But he also fashioned a whip and literally physically drove people out of the temple when they were committing blasphemy against his father, God. He was not afraid to use violence when complete sin was being perpetrated. And even in that passive accepting of rejection and torture and arrest and the cross, he was not just being a pacifist. He was going to war because the devil had us in his chains. And when Jesus went to the cross, he did two things. We talk about the one all the time. He took the justice of God that was due us and he bore it on the cross. We'll talk about that even later today. But you know what else he did? He took the chains that had you bound to the ruler of this world and he broke them. He went to war. 1 John 3, verse 8, the Apostle John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's war talk. Jesus himself, Matthew 12, 29, when he was being compared, maybe you're an agent of Satan or a demon possessed. He said, How can someone enter a strong man's house, that's the devil's house, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. That's Jesus describing himself. He binds the strong man. He's going to war. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, When he, Jesus, ascended on high after rising from the dead, he led led a host of captives. That is war language. Jesus went to war even when he was innocently suffering. And so we need to understand that innocent suffering in its context. Jesus, in his unique role as a mediator, playing a role only he could play, the role that the Old Testament described as the suffering servant, and the role that Isaiah uh, prophesied of the final, ultimate Lamb of Atonement, these roles predicted and architected throughout all of history by God were the one unique, necessary way that the war could be won. God's son could triumph by absorbing all of the guilt of all of the slaves of the evil one and break their bondage of slavery by his act of self-sacrifice and suffering. It brought peace, but he went to war in the most decisive and powerful way. He broke the power of condemnation, the power of guilt, the barrier of sin and slavery to the evil one. He satisfied the justice of God. He magnified the law of the love of God. He poured out the mercy of God, but he went to war. Do not miss the reality of the New Testament. It was in the heavenlies, sure, but war it was. And finally, a true understanding of the church helps us see that peacemaking is not pacifism. True nature of Jesus, true nature of gospel law, of love, true nature of gospel justice, true nature of sin and evil, and the true nature of the church. All of these combine together as threads which create a cord of compelling argument to me. 
that pacifism is not peacemaking, and peacemaking is not pacifism. You see, pacifist-minded Christians will, will respond by saying, yes, Jesus did spiritual war, but he did it by nonviolence in the physical, cultural realm we exist, and that's our pattern. But I think this pattern fails to understand the fullness of what it means to be the people of God. It creates too big a separation between the spiritual and physical realms, between spiritual war and the physical place that we live, between the old covenant and the new covenant. Because as soon as you ask this question about justice, the whole thing changes. Jesus is not just going to war in the spiritual realms. He's bringing about justice in the spiritual realms. So by the Christian pacifistic logic, Jesus went to war so we can ask for peace. Jesus did justice so we don't have to? No, no, no. They will never say that. They are some of the primary exponents of social justice, as they should be. But there's a reason. Because they recognize that the church is the visible expression of Jesus' kingdom on earth. Like Israel was in the Old Covenant, we are. We are still Israel. We are the new Israel. In that Ephesians 2 passage, if you look down, you will see the third ver- uh, second verse, verse 12. You were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You non-Jewish people were alienated from your true citizenship with the people of Israel who believe in Jesus. We're one. And the- so, justice for the oppressed and marginalized what is true in the spiritual realm through Christ, we're to try and make it more visible here by promoting and pursuing justice here. We're to bring the kingdom of God down here, make it visible now as much as possible. That's why Jesus said, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just his will for justice. It's his war against evil that we are called to incarnate. To love the oppressed, to pray and help to bring an end to sex trafficking, to help police do that is to promote God's justice and enter into God's war at the same time. The church makes the justice, the grace, the war of God on the devil visible to the waiting and watching world. Peacemaking is not pacifism. It's far more profound, in my opinion. But secondly, and now we're going to get more personal to you and me. Peacemaking is not a an internal relational form of pacifism. It's not a passive or passive-aggressive removing yourself from conflict. We have in our culture a kind of passive-aggressive Canadian refusal to deal with issues. When we're hurt, we tend to withdraw, not deal with it, nurse the pain, then tell others, go so that we can find solace. And then we can feel righteous in our anger and our frustration and our hurt, and then we hope it goes away, but it never does. Neither does the resentment and self-righteous feelings of alienation to the other person. There is a loss. It's not peace. It's just the absence of conflict. That's the superficial, non-profound meaning. I was talking to a pastor. He was British. And I had this view of British. They're very, you know, proper in the way they speak and carefully contain their emotions. Typical Canadian caricature of a Brit. It's probably completely untrue. But he was somewhat like that. And he was moving after 13 years of pastoring a church in Canada to the United States. And I said, hey, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, why? He said, well, you know, like the States is a vastly different culture 
you know, you're from Canada, and before that, you were from Britain. He says, yeah, I was from Britain. And you think us British are just sort of, you know, polite and nicey-nicey, etc. But you know what? Britons tell the truth. You Canadians are so passive-aggressive. I am tired of it. I can't wait to go to America where, like Britain, we speak truth to each other. I've had enough of you. I'm like, whoa. Not very British conversation whatsoever. But he was right. Peacemaking then is this. It is the costly willingness to move into conflict with love for the sake of creating reconciliation and real harmony. Between nations, we call this peace. Between people, we often call it restoration or reconciliation. It is not the absence of arguments. It's the presence of reconciled, restored relationships. It's moving in love toward a situation of conflict and being open to both owning your sin and loving others so they can own theirs by confronting them. That justice may be served through mutual repentance. That reconciliation may be served through mutual confession and forgiveness. And that love may be restored through mutual care. That's the profound nature of what peacemaking is. Secondly, why is it so painful? Because when you go to peacemake, you will be confronted with both your sin and the need to confront them about theirs. You will see both your own sin and you'll have to make them see theirs and that's messy and that's hard and it's vulnerable. To see your own sin requires the courage to admit you are wrong the humility to admit that that wrong is just who you are and the failure to love is what you have done. It requires the courage to see the other's sin and in love call it out with care and compassion that leaves room for them to be able to receive forgiveness. It requires courage and it requires humility. You need to be willing to enter peacemaking which means you need to create space for others to speak into your life and you can take it and you're not going to just be defensive and you're not just going to fire back it needs humility it requires courage it requires compassion it requires love and it requires you going into a journey of personal pain there's no way through it without those things that means two things need to be laid aside Firstly, our pride needs to be put aside. We have to humble ourselves and say, I, I'm going to have to admit to some wrong. I'm going to have to stop justifying my behavior. I'm going to have to lay aside my pride. Jane Casey, award-winning Irish author, said, Sometimes the hardest thing is to admit you were wrong. It's just hard to say you need to be forgiven. Second, you need to lay aside your fear. Because to move into peacemaking is to lose control. To walk into an area of vulnerability where you can take some shots and things get messy and you just can't control it. And we're afraid. We're afraid to lose control. We're afraid to own our sin and the other side might not own theirs. 
Seeing our own sin and failure often undoes us. Seeing and admitting our own sin and failure and not feeling like the other one owns theirs equally is really hard. Sometimes it's easier just to turn and walk away. Social media star Michelle Blanchard, I don't think she's Canadian, but she said something that literally could be our national motto. Sometimes it's harder to say sorry than it is to say goodbye. (laughs) That's Canadian. Bye. It's going to move away. That's not what it means. It's so painful. But let me tell you now why it's so powerful. Because the world is broken and sinful. And therefore, peacemaking is always needed. You can't avoid broken relationships. We break relationship with God when we hurt or defy Him all the time. We break relationship with each other all the time. We need to be peacemakers because we aren't good at being peacekeepers. Jesus wasn't dumb, so he didn't say, go be peacekeepers. He knew that would be impossible. He knew our sin, and he knew our brokenness, and he knew the tension and the alienation that we make all the time. Conflict is a reality of life under the sun. It's needed. Secondly, it makes or shows us to be his children, his heirs. It says here, they are sons of God if you're a peacemaker. What does that mean? It means we show ourselves to be children of Jesus, children of the God who wants to make peace. Look at Ephesians 2 for a little bit of a sense of this peace. Verse 13, but the fourth line down. But now in Christ Jesus, you once, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Us there is Jewish and non-Jewish people and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's the Jewish law that separated them from interacting with non-Jewish people. That he might create in himself one new man. That's one new body, one new group, one new Israel, one new people of God in place of the two. So making peace. And... That was peace amongst humans. And might reconcile us both to God. That's peace with God. In one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus came to make war on the devil, to make peace between God and us, and between us and us. We need to think about this. He came to bear the cost of our peace. You need to realize that firstly and foremost, made in the image of God, your primary relationship is with God and your primary alienation is with Him. Let's call this what it really is. You and I, without the grace of God in the intervention of Jesus, alienated from God and headed for eternal separation from Him, what the Bible calls hell, an eternal anguish, alienation, and separation from God forever. We have no peace with God on our own. We have offended Him infinitely by our own natural, self-absorbed, sinful behavior, our own cruelty. The wages of sin, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, is death. The consequence of that sin is forever alienation from God. Except, in mercy, God intervened and Jesus came to make peace. Romans 5, 8, which we quoted already. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, 
when we move toward peacemaking, we act like Jesus. Because you know what Jesus did? He was separated from us. And he could have sat there in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit and just demeaned us and talked in his echo chamber of the three of them because they had legitimate beefs against us. They had done no wrong and we had done all the wrong. But they didn't stay in their echo chamber. You know how he humanized us? He became human on our behalf. Became one of us. And becoming one of us, he moved into the conflict that we had with God. And though he had none of his own sin to own, he took all of the sins of all of his people and he owned all the guilt of all of it. And he absorbed the pain of taking our sin and owning it all. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here's the power to make peace. The problem is our fear and our pride and our sin. And the power is in Jesus. Look to him. Look to the one who came down into the mess. Look to the one who bore all the costs sinlessly, bore all of it without needing to own it. He owned it all. Look to him and feel his forgiveness. And know there is no owning of sin that you will ever have to do in peacemaking that comes close to the owning of all your sin that he's already done for you. And feel the freedom of that. You're totally forgiven. Being totally forgiven, you can move without fear of condemnation into owning your own sin. Secondly, look to him. I mean, look. That was the look to him. Secondly, love like him. You see, Jesus didn't just die for you and rise for you. He put his spirit in you if you're a Christian. You have his love, his sin-bearing, guilt-owning love available to empower you. The spirit of God is the spirit of love and the spirit of reconciliation and the spirit of peacemaking. Love like him. Own your own sin. Describe the pain of your own weakness to them and your own feelings to them. Confess what they tell you you have done to them. To the extent that it is sin, confess and ask for forgiveness. Not, I'm sorry, but I have sinned against you. I have not followed the law of love to you. Please forgive me. Own your own sin. Confess your own sin. When they forgive you, receive it. If they don't, that's on them. But if they own and they confess to you, extend forgiveness when they've done so. And then change. Repent of the behavior and the pattern that causes this. The Spirit gives you the power to own your sin and to move forward. Because the Spirit is the Spirit who is, gives you these beatitudes. He lets you be poor in spirit. He lets you realize that it's only by grace that you're the child of God. 
He gives you the power to mourn your own sin that caused part of the conflict, their sin which caused part of the conflict, the brokenness between you which is so painful. You mourn that because the Spirit's in you. Blessed are the meek. He's a spirit of meekness and He will give you the ability to move in to reconciliation, not wanting to get your own agenda satisfied, but reconciliation. You see, when you move in meekly, you move in not for your own agenda, but the Spirit gives you the power to move in like Jesus did for the healing of the other and the relationship. And he's the spirit who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, which gives you the courage to go, this is wrong, this alienation, and I will work through the pain because your righteousness calls us to heal this wrong. He's the spirit of mercy, which allows you to feel and express God's mercy and forgive even when they admit or Sometimes don't even fully admit. You can fully forgive because they've gone as far as they can go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Let me replace that. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, and he bore them for you. Jesus believes all things, and he believed all things when he died for you. Jesus hoped all things, hoping with certainty that he could achieve the reconciliation of you and God. And Jesus endured all things. And the love that is described here is him. And his spirit is in you. And if you look to him and what he's done for you, and then you ask of him to give you a love like his, his spirit will give you the power to be a peacemaker. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. And I ask now that your spirit would come, the spirit of the ultimate peacemaker, and teach us to learn to own, to absorb, to confess, to repent, to forgive and be forgiven, that we might be truly peacemakers in a world that doesn't know how to make peace anymore. Help us to be salt and light for your sake and your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I have a couple questions in the already texted in. You can text if you want. If you want to put up your hand and jump the queue, I see a hand up here. Yes. How do you humanize your opponent in a war? That question is really a good one. Let me think about that and get back to you. Yeah. Really good question. It's really hard. I've read a lot about war and how to get people to go through the horrors of war. They dehumanize the opposition to give motivation. It's very hard to do. That's why war... I mean, the, the, the Christian pacifists are onto something. Very few wars are acceptable 
biblically or in the gospel. That's one of the problems. It's really hard to humanize in war. So let me think about that. Thank you. All right, I will go to the texts. Is there a duty to work to reconcile all misgivings? Not necessarily. All broken relationships, yes. All misgivings, uh, no. I have uh, a fear of heights, so I have misgivings about parachuting. I have not reconciled those misgivings by going skydiving yet. I don't think I'm sinning by avoiding skydiving. I just think I'm smart. So I think, no, you don't have to reconcile all misgivings. If you have tensions with people, it depends on how how serious it is. Sometimes you just have tensions and you agree to work together. So, uh, no, but serious relational harm and brokenness does, does call you to try and reconcile. What does it mean to be called the Son of God? I think I tried to define that. It's one who is in the image and likeness and acts like their Father, God, the peacemaker. Great question. Uh, how do we make peace with someone who has wronged us but is not willing to make peace with us? Uh, you know the answer, I think, intuitively. So I will bless you with your own knowledge. You cannot. It takes two to make peace. Uh, it always does. But you can take the initiative and try. And then you can wait. I told the first service that uh, we, I had some strained relationships with one of the couples that founded this church, a good chunk of that was my fault, and I didn't really know how to move forward in peacemaking with them. I gummed up the peacemaking a little bit. They gummed it up, and they got relocated somewhere else, and just this, this weird kind of polite tension existed for years. And I got to see them this summer, and what a joy it was to be able to just come to them and say, look, I just want to own anything that, that you still have against me. And they could say, look... We also want to own. We didn't leave well. We have nothing against you anymore. And we could pray and we could talk. And it was so joyful. But it was a decade. One second. Is, is, is minimum necessary force an overly simplistic answer to humanizing in war? You know, I, the just war theory, I'm not doing justice to. Uh, nor can I in the short space of an excursus in the middle of a sermon. So I just want to tell you that the majority of Christianity for what I think are good and biblical reasons and understandings of the Bible as a whole in the New Testament as its own work do not think that pacifism is the complete answer. Uh, so it, that may be an overly simplistic answer. I'm not sure. Yes. Last question. Is there a line? Oh, I do think so. Um, uh, police officers, for example, always use the minimum amount of force to, or are required to try and use the minimum amount of force to stop a crime and apprehend somebody. Uh, you don't just go double tap someone in the head because they're committing a burglary or something. So, yes, those things are definitely uh, part of the thing. You always try to, to do that. Uh, how is it just that God used nuclear bombs to end World War II? I'm not saying that's just. I don't necessarily think that was justice. That's, there's a very long and, and difficult ethical discussion about nuclear bombs, and the question actually reveals to me that the person who's asking should enter into the long and far more nuanced discussion because it, it's not just simply absolutely unjust either. I think it was unjust after investigating the morals and ethical 
issues there for uh, thing. I come on the side of injustice, but that's a much more long and nuanced discussion that I would encourage whoever texted that to enter into. Um, and I don't know that it uh, ended World War II. It did end Japan's um, uh, involvement. And so I think I get that partially helped end a part of World War II. And so, um, no, I'm not going to defend nuclear bombs. I think anyone who wants to get into that discussion, though, shouldn't just blithely go around and go, that's pure injustice. Uh, give the Allies far more credit for the amount of agonizing they had to go through for that, for the amount of suffering they were seeing and the amount of, of death and war they were seeing. I still don't ever particularly... My ethics of war does not allow you to wipe out civilians in such a mass fashion. And so that, that's a tipping point for me. Uh, but I think... You should enter the discussion. That's a, that's a good one for anyone to learn. But I want to ask another question about why was it just for God to die for you and me? Because it wasn't. God decided not to be just when he sent his son to the cross. God was not unjust either. God was God. And in the infinity of his grace and his mercy, he found a way to uphold his own justice by making sure every sin got paid for, but to invest the world with grace. Because on the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And he said, this is my body given for you, a justice offering that you might experience grace. A little while later, Jesus picked up a cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you, not justice. Justice, your justice, I pay for unjust, unjustly, not injustice, but grace. I'll take your sin as a gift to you, though I don't deserve it. And Jesus said, of the bread, eat this, all of you. And of the wine, drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. And so we are going to do that now. We're going to look at the greatest scandal of injustice, or non-justice that ever happened, excuse me, and the greatest unleashing of grace that the world will ever see. The death of God the Son on the cross, that you and I could be called sons of God. I'm going to pray, and after I've prayed, we are going to give the Lord's table out. The Lord's table we distributed differently for your safety. We're going to have you come up. If you are down, go to your left and come up. And people will be waiting at the end of each aisle with little receptacles. They will have a piece of bread, which is not gluten-free. Gluten-free will be in the back left. And underneath that, there will be some grape juice. They're in individual packets. You'll put your hand out. People with sanitized hands and gloves on will put it on you so there will be minimal transmission of any kind of germs for you. We know it's a little bit unusual, but the law of love says let's keep you safe while we come together in this family meal. And so we're going to do that now. I'm going to pray. If you're upstairs, you're also going to go clockwise, but instead of left and down, you're going to go right and up. They'll be up behind you at the top. Gluten-free bread in both floors is in the corners. So if you need gluten-free, you go there, and a station will serve you gluten-free. I invite now all baptized believers in Jesus who have trusted in him to come 
and enjoy this table. If you are still investigating or curious about the faith, read the prayers and locate yourself in your spiritual journey. I invite you to receive his grace today. Ask Jesus to come into your life and get true peace with God that will give you the power to have true peace with others. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this meal of grace and reconciliation. Help us to remember and participate in it that we might be empowered to be agents of reconciliation, peacemakers in the likeness of Jesus, sons and daughters of him. Through the power of his spirit, we pray. In your name, amen. The table is open. There are two people at each aisle. Come on down. They will put it in your hands.